Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged with me, Ellie Duncan, Head of Content here at Open Banking Expo. Joining me for this episode is Yasser Jawan, Digital Innovation Lead at Equifax Canada. Canada's open banking implementation journey remains in the early stages. There has been some debate now about whether the country will take a market-driven approach or ultimately follow the UK's lead and opt for a regulatory-led initiative to drive adoption. But in August, the Canadian Advisory Committee on Open Banking set out its recommendations for implementation in a long-awaited final report. The panel recommended neither an exclusively government-led nor industry-led approach, but put forward the idea of a hybrid made-in-Canada approach. Whatever the approach the country ends up taking, what matters most to my guest today is the consumer and the benefit to them of open banking. Welcome to the podcast, Yasser. Thank you, Aline. Great to be here. Well, let's start with uh, probably the most straightforward of of all the questions. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about your role at Equifax Canada and what it involves, please? Uh, Certainly. We are a data and insights company, right? And our goal really is to provide intelligence to businesses so that they can fuel their transactions. Um, In the past, these insights were based on credit payment behavior, so hence your point around the credit reports and scores. But more and more, um, these are being driven by a broader and more current data set, hence linkage to open banking. Um, But for myself, my role really at Equifax is in strategy and innovation. And uh, what I'm doing here is I'm working on bringing really more holistic insights and intelligence uh, so that we can help our businesses and our customers really make more better informed decisions to serve their customers, which really are the consumers. Uh, primarily through digital channels. Great. Well, um, like I mentioned in in my intro, that Canada is is under a, a bit of pressure in the sense that it's sort of playing catch up with the US, Europe, Australia, and sort of certain parts of Asia and Africa when it comes to open banking. Um, it might be helpful if you can sort of briefly summarise where the country stands at the moment in terms of open banking. Happy to, Ali. Um, I will start off with the core point around consumer data rights, since that really is at the heart of open banking. And the good thing here is that there is broad consensus across all stakeholders that consumers are the owners of their data. From a government activity perspective, uh, the report by the advisory committee to the Minister of Finance and Open Banking following the consultations that we participated in last December was recently made public. And it calls for a um, a Made in Canada hybrid approach that can be implemented in as early as 18 months. Um, Now, although Parliament is now dissolved with the federal elections slated for the 20th of September, the top two federal political parties have identified moving forward with data portability and open banking in their respective platforms. Uh, It does remain to be seen, however, how quickly progress will be made in light of other priorities that, um, that are on their plate. Um, meanwhile, on a, from a market perspective, what I'm seeing is that the large federally regulated banks that really account for the bulk of banking relationships in Canada, they are the primary banking pro- data providers, and um, they are working to align on a framework of data exchange standards through FTX. 
but a lot of the data is residing on core legacy systems. So even when common API connection standards are established, um, it remains to be seen what investments the larger banks will be willing to make to activate access to meaningful data through these APIs. Um, finally, you have the fintechs and the challenger banks. And these, um, these are really the typical users of the data. And they, they are pretty much done waiting. And uh, they're using other methods available in the market to connect to data through aggregators. And in doing so, the issue is that the most important stakeholder in all of this, which is the consumer, is left with an inconsistent user experience based on the connection standards not being stable and deferring from entity to entity. Okay, so um, uh, let's talk then a bit more about, I guess, what is going on uh, in Canada, which is that, you know, we know there's already scraping and, and data sharing that, that's happening. Um, I was just wondering, where does this leave the consumer? What, what, what does that mean for the consumer if, if those things are, are happening? Um, so, and you said it correctly, scraping is really the, the source of data access going on right now. And, um, and it's actually very prevalent. I mean, um, before I kind of go into uh, what's really happening for the consumer, I would say let, let's just size the issue, right? And the fact is that um, based on the advisory report that came out last year, um, there were at least 4 million uh, transactions or 4 million, I should say, not transactions, but 4 million um, accounts that were being accessed through scraping, right? So that's pretty much 4 million consumers. Um, in a country that has a population of just under 30 million adults, that's a pretty sizable proportion. And also, just to put it in context, that, that number was based on data that happened before the COVID shutdown. So before all the hard shift to digital and before all this, you know, people really embracing digital channels, that's how many Canadians were going and using these, these services. Um, so where it leaves the consumer really is that, um, you know, they've shown that where there is a need and they're seeing value, they will adopt and use these services, right? Um, and in, uh, in some instances, actually, they, they, they may not even really have a choice to use the service because an alternative is really either not available or not feasible. Um, and what that's done is that it really is leaving consumers, I think, unprotected um, in case anything goes wrong, right? Um, so they're, they're adopting these, they're using it, but, you know, um, you know, so far we have not heard of any major instances where consumers have lost funds or been defrauded. But the fact does remain that should anything go wrong, unfortunately, Canadian consumers do not have any form of recourse. Okay. Um, that's obviously quite an important point to make. And, and, and it's interesting there as well, hearing about the scale of, of scraping, that, scraping that is happening. So um, uh, just perhaps let's, let's move on to then the potential, I suppose, that comes with open banking implementation. Um, and I guess importantly for you, as, as you see it, is, is the benefit to the consumer ultimately. So what, what do consumers stand to gain from open banking? Um, well, first and foremost, <laughs> it would definitely be production. Um, but I think it's really going to be around um, the type of services that they can get, right? So they, they would definitely benefit from um, 
some of the benefits that they're getting today, actually, like I mentioned, the four million, and and I believe the number is is higher than that. Um, but one of the benefits that they're getting right now is faster access to services, uh, less friction. So you know, um, if they're looking at um, transferring funds to fund a, a trading account, for example, um, to make a trade, that can actually happen faster. Uh, so they're getting some operational efficiencies for sure. Um, but you know. Um, with regards to how they would really benefit, I think, is where a lot of other services that are currently um, not being made available to them at all. So it's not just a matter of not getting things faster. It's about just getting access to certain things that is currently that is not really happening, right? Um, which I think um, open banking would enable because that uh, would allow entities to have much faster access and more stable access to data and information and intelligence that is verifiable. And it's based on that, that they can actually provide better services and access to better um, uh, solutions to consumers. So ultimately, uh, consumers would be able to not just be able to do the things that they can do today anyway, but a little bit faster. They would actually be able to do other things and have access to other services that just that they're currently locked out of today. Yeah, I think um, we'll come on to talk more about that kind of access that you, you mentioned. And um, it might be helpful, actually, if you can give us uh, some examples of the consumer use cases that might prove to be something of an easy win for for banks and fintechs in, in Canada. Uh, certainly. So uh, what I'll do is I'll start off by some of the use cases that we're seeing today right now. Um, mm -hmm. The most low-hanging fruit really is with regards to... Um, uh, for a consumer perspective, um, cent central point of, of uh, access to all the information, right? So um, consolidated view through uh, personal financial management software programs. Um, the other one I referred to was um, use cases that call for operational efficiency. So uh, faster digital account opening processes that really kicked into high gear last year, for example, right? Um, in fact, there is one, um, one challenger bank that has basically just said that if you want to go and, and open an account with them um, and you want to fund that account, so um, there's really only one way to do that, and it's actually using um, uh, this process. Um, there's reduced friction, like I mentioned, in verifications of funds and funds transfers. Um, but one of the things that I will call out is that the use cases that are there, the low-hanging fruit, um, they are easy wins for fintechs and challenger banks because most of them are easily, um, the benefits are easily quantifiable to them of operational efficiencies, right? Um, you'd, meant, you'd asked me the question about easy wins for banks and fintechs. Well, when you think, when I, when you ask me about banks, I, I would separate challenger banks from the traditional large banks. And the reason I do that is because the traditional large banks, interestingly, have generally been absent in discussions around using and accessing the data. They've, they, they've been very present about, you know, how do we enable access to the data? But in a lot of forums that I've been at, um, they, the use of the data by those big institutions um, or, the, or the teams that are responsible for using those data has been absent in those conversations. And I think um, that's one of the key reasons um, why things are kind of moving so slowly, right? Um, but um, maybe it's got to do with the fact that uh, the benefits of the data use when we look at operational use cases, um, they're not as easily quantifiable for the larger banks, which already have a large, and they're vested in a large physical presence across the country. Um, and they've got pretty well-staffed contact centers. So um, 
this, the, I guess the impetus for them is quite different than it is for fintechs and challenger banks that, that do not have these, these um, entrenched programs in place already. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting to hear, actually. Um, I know you, you mentioned a little earlier about that kind of the access uh, to finance uh, that, that could be sort of opened up uh, by open banking. I mean, we know that, that Canada is kind of globally recognised as a diverse and welcoming country for immigration. But it is still the case, isn't it, that newcomers to Canada typically have less access to credit. So can you explain, first of all, how big is this issue? You're right um, in what you've said. Newcomers to Canada have less access to credit. And um, I think the, the problem can be summed up in that in the absence of traditional credit history data, lenders are treating this segment of customers as new to credit or inexperienced with credit, uh, which is why when we look at the two most popular credit products used by this segment within the first six to eight months that they arrive in the country, we find that typically newcomers are offered low limits on unsecured credit cards or they are charged higher interest rates than the general population on secured loans for automobiles. And Ellie, that is, that's very concerning, especially when you look at the type of people immigrating to Canada. Close to 60% of our immigration is under the economic immigrant category. So named because, um, these tend to be well-established individuals and professionals that were already making a positive economic contribution in their home countries. And they were admitted to Canada in order to power our country's economic growth. And sure enough, we see that when they're here, their income is about 40% higher than that of the general population. Despite this, it can take up to three years for these individuals to build a quote-unquote traditional credit history to access credit on similar terms as their peers in the general population, which to me reads as three years of lost economic growth opportunities for these individuals. What, um, what we're also seeing is that these individuals know that they are being underserved and, and they're not waiting. Our data shows that by the time the three years comes around, um, over 60% of these individuals have either canceled or abandoned their first bank credit card issued to them. And that is quite telling because it's pointing to a failure that's happening where we have somebody coming in, they're economically viable, they're depositing funds in a bank account, and they're being provided with a basic product, a basic credit product that's not meeting their needs. So, this is an area where I think we can act and actually where we need to act as an ecosystem of intelligence providers, data users, and credit providers, and really step up our game to help the consumer, especially when we look at another interesting fact about this segment, which is that they are 20% less likely to be late in making credit repayments than the general population. So they are a better credit risk and they earn more. So why are we underserving them? Why are we throttling their growth, right? Um, this is where we really need to change the game and look beyond just operational efficiencies that allow us to conduct our transactions 
just a little bit faster and really look at the fact that we have an opportunity here to unlock credit, as, uh, credit access for a truly viable segment of consumers that's driving 80% of our population growth. Yeah. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's painted a really detailed picture, actually, of, of the situation. And there's obviously, you know, a lot of data, as, as you've um, drawn on there, to so that you, you know, there is a lot of information out there on, on this category of, of people, for want of a better sort of uh, phrase. But, I mean, with all that information, it, it seems like there's no reason not to address the problem. So, so what needs to happen next, not just to address it, but actually to rectify this? And, and I guess, in that sense, you know, how can consumer directed finance basically help to level the playing field, level these inequities that we, that, you know, you've you've told us about, really? Um, yeah. So I think what. Uh what needs to happen, and actually some of that is already starting to happen as well. So Equifax is engaged in, in um, the ecosystem working with um, certain uh, partners um, around how can we how can we access some of this uh, information in a safe manner, first of all, so protecting the consumer and, um, and uh, having controls in place. Uh, but once you've accessed that information, how do we um, standardize it? How do we benchmark it in a way that is that, that allows them to be treated consistently with everyone else, right? So um, bring that in so we can do that part. Um, and I think this is where um, uh, there's an opportunity for um, well-capitalized uh, entities uh, that are looking for growth that can actually work with us. And together we can, we can uh, fund um, opportunities for um Underbanked populations. So I, I, I'm using the term underbanked. I think um, I think that would be an appropriate term um, for these populations, right? Because they they um, we are we are we are serving them under the, the level at which they're truly capable of being served. So um, I, I think the the market is already starting to move in that direction. Um, it really would help, of course, if the protections are there. And and that is so. It brings me back to the point I said right in the earlier part of our, of our talk was. That the fact that w the one thing that I think uh, we really need to solve really, really quickly is um, this piece around consumer protection recourse, right? So um, that's the one area where, you know, um, we can be there exchanging data and provide information, um, but we just need to make sure that consumers are um, have that comfort, that they have, they have the protection so they can actually be be um, more willing to to participate and benefit from these um, opportunities. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And well, we'll um, hopefully see see that happen uh, throughout the rest of, of this year and see some progress there. Um, and I wanted to come on to ask you kind of about the US actually, because obviously, you know, the US's open banking journey is distinct from from that of Canada's. But I was wanting to hear from you about what you think the impact is of the recent developments in the US and, and what impact they'll have on Canada. So in particular, I'm thinking about President Biden's executive order on promoting uh, competition in the American economy, which he issued on the 9th of July. Uh, and it, it appears to prioritise open banking over there. Do you think this will spur Canada on its open banking journey? Um, I sure do hope so. Um, and I think, and I feel quite optimistic about that. Um, and the reason I say that is because 
Um, interesting enough, uh, you have banks such as uh, TD Bank and B- Bank of Montreal that have uh, a material pr- retail presence in the U.S. Um, and and one of the reasons I think, uh, as I said earlier, that things are moving slowly is that you have these big data providers um, really only engaging on the data data provision side, not on the data use side. Well, uh, with movements happening in the U.S. market, um, I would expect that you know you have these type of entities that will now take uh, give a second look at how can they really benefit from using consumer consented data to enhance um, the experience of their customers and their prospects, and hopefully that um, that uh, those initiatives and programs could then carry up to their parent companies that are operating in Canada. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens there, I think. And um, as you say, hopefully um, it, it does provide a bit of a bit of in- prompting and, and spurs kind of further innovation in Canada. Um, but of those countries that have already implemented open banking, um, which global developments are you sort of most impressed with, uh, Yasser? So I think um, one that that I am really encouraged by is um, is one that we don't hear too much about is actually in Singapore. Um, uh, what uh, what they have over there is called the um, they've got the Singapore Financial Data Exchange or SG Findex program. Um, and why I'm really impressed with what's happened over there is that um, they have really leapfrogged uh, a lot of issues around. Um, identifying and, and verifying the individual that's providing the consent. So uh, they have, a, Singapore has a, a national digital, digital identity network that's established and, and they're leveraging that to, uh, to empower uh, the data exchange through uh, SG Findex. Um, and the other piece that's really great about that experience for a consumer that's in the Singapore market is the fact that they have a consistent um, uh, central consent framework. So it's a consistent experience when they're giving consent, um, no matter who they're banking with or or which other entity they're they're allowing to give access to their financial information in case they're looking at a um, centralized uh, view of their their data, it is the same consent uh, experience. And I think that is great because not only is their identity provided automatically because of a national digital identity framework, they have recourse and protections in place. Um, but they also have the same consistent experience, right? So it just drives um, other use cases when when they when they open up. Right now, most of the use cases really are around personal financial management, but they're really primed to open up a whole bunch of other use cases on the back of the fact that they have that national digital identity network and they have a singular, consistent, centralized consent um, mechanism. Right, that, that's really interesting to hear. I think you're right. It's often um, one uh, a country that's that's not talked about so much in relation to open banking, and and so it's it's interesting to look that way and and see what what Singapore have done. And well, hopefully, it's something that we can all learn from as well. So, Yasser, thanks very much for joining me today. Um, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Not only thanks to Yasser, of course, but thank you for listening. Now, the next Open Banking Expo Canadian Meetup is due to take place on the 28th of September this year. If you want to find out more and register your interest, then go to the events page on openbankingexpo.com. See you very soon for the next episode. Goodbye for now.